Please remain standing as you're able. This is from Acts, the 13th chapter. Paul is making a speech about the history of Israel. And he says, After removing Saul, God made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. He was one of the greatest men in the Bible. I think he may be one of the greatest men in human history. Sixty-six chapters of the Bible are are devoted to his life and exploits. He wrote, in fact, the early church's worship book, a good part of it called the Psalms. We used two of his Psalms this morning. The Jews anticipated a Messiah would come, and they said that the Messiah would be his descendant or his son. He's mentioned in the very last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22. He is. His star is on the flag of the nation of Israel as they came back together in 1948. He is an exceptional man. His name is David. David was a poet, a musician, a warrior, a statesman, a lover, a shepherd. David was a man of such amazing capabilities, talents, and adventures that for years many scholars put forth the theory that David was actually a myth, that no man like this ever really existed in the history of Israel. And yet that theory came crashing down in 1998 when archaeologists unearthed a little monument, a marker, left by an invading army from the east that had defeated Israel in the battle. And this is what it said on their marker. 200 years after the death of David, it said, here we defeated the house of David in battle. No myth is David. But so exceptional was David that 200 years after his life and his reign, the nation is still known to the other nations around the world as the house of David. David was a real man. David was an amazing man. But there are two things as we begin to spend a summer together thinking about David that I want you to know. The first is this. Even though David did many great and amazing things, those things that he did didn't matter all that much to God. We're told that the only thing that really mattered to God was that David was a man after God's own heart. For one of the things that we'll learn next week is that God doesn't always look on the same things we look upon God doesn't really count the number of championship rings on Robert Ory's fingers. God doesn't really count the number of square feet in our house or look at the kind of car in the driveway. God is looking underneath all of that to the heart and what he found in David was impressive. But the second thing I want you to know is this, that I believe the source of David's impressive accomplishments was in large part to be found in his heart. He was a man to be sure of many talents, but it was who he was on the inside that enabled those talents to blossom and expand and bless so many people. The book of Proverbs puts it this way in chapter 4. Watch your heart, says the proverb. Watch your heart with all diligence, for from your heart will flow the springs of life. All the good that you will and can do will come from the inside out. Jesus put it this way, lecturing a crowd later in his lifetime, Jesus said, it's a good tree that produces good fruit. 
Who you are on the inside gives rise to what you do on the outside. And you need to know that the inside of David was so significant that it yielded tremendous accomplishments. So this is what I want to do. This summer I want us to get a closer look at the heart of David. And I know no better way to introduce to you the heart of David than to contrast it with another heart that's in the Bible that we come to know, and that is the heart of his predecessor, King Saul. Now, one of the things we're going to do during the summer is go back to using outlines again. Now, some of you are rusty. We haven't used these in about two years. But uh, if you'd like to follow along, you'll find an outline inserted in your bulletin. But don't worry. Uh, There's no test afterwards. We're not going to collect them. If they're not helpful to you, don't use them uh, and take notes on them. But you could take them home and they'll make a lovely airplane or paper football at a future moment. But if you'd like to follow along, here's the first thing I want you to know this morning. And that is this, that the source of David's greatness was his heart. The source of David's greatness was his heart. And to learn what his heart is like, I know no better way to do that than to contrast it with the heart of King Saul. The heart is, his heart basically is not like Saul's. What's Saul like? Let me tell you a few adventures from King Saul's life. The first one is this. When King Saul is named Saul, he's made king because in a land of short people, he's the tallest guy. And when it comes time to make him king, he goes and hides in luggage where he hopes they can't find him so that they can't make him king. As he becomes king and exercises his rule, he often exercises it with threats, intimidation, and a large amount of of deceit and duplicity. This past week I was reading a quote um, from one of Saddam Hussein's son, Uday, and this is what Uday said a number of years ago while Saddam, his father, was in reign. He He said, the left pocket on my father's shirt never knows what's in the right pocket. He's so deceitful. So duplicitous that you never know. That was Saul. Saul was like that. When we first meet uh, David, he has come on the scene because of Saul's disobedience. What happened was Saul was in charge of Israel and the Philistines were the constant thorn in the side of Israel. and They wanted to wipe Israel out. So they gathered the armies together. The Bible said they looked like as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They start heading toward Israel and Saul knows it's time to fight. But he also knows his soldiers won't fight unless they think God is calling them to fight or God is on their side or God is with the king. So he decides against God's orders and against the prophet Samuel's orders to offer a sacrifice to prove to all the soldiers that God likes Saul and is on Saul's side. He disobeys God in offering the sacrifice. That's kind of one thing we adventure in Saul. Then two chapters later we see something else. Saul is commanded by God to go and attack and eliminate an ancient Israelite enemy called the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were very wicked people. Just to give you a hint of this, years before, centuries before, when the Israelite people had escaped as slaves from Egypt, there was a million and a half of them, maybe two million, and as they were making their way through the desert toward the Promised Land, they were by necessity strung out. And at the end of the line, at the back of this line, were the elderly, the infirmed, those who couldn't move very quickly, mothers nursing children, other small children. And the Amalekites came and attacked the back of the line and picked off the elderly, the infirmed, the women, the children. Some were killed. Some were enslaved. Others were made prostitutes. These are the Amalekites. And God says, I'll remember that. And during King Saul's time, it's, it's time for them to be punished for what they did. 
But Saul does not carry out God's punishment. Instead, he holds the king hostage, hoping to extort some more things from the king of the Amalekites. That's Saul in a nutshell. So how would I summarize Saul's heart? Let me summarize it three ways. If you look at Saul, the motivation in his life, the overriding motivation is always fear. Saul's afraid of the Philistines. Saul's afraid of uh, people who, uh, who might want his throne, both real and imagined. Paul, Saul is afraid that his popularity will sink. He's worried about public opinion. He's afraid of that. He lives and governs out of fear. His main concern can be summarized in one word, himself. Saul bases all his decisions on this, what is best for Saul in his reign? What will solidify him as king? What will make him happy? What will make him healthy? His main concern is himself. And his main method of acting is what we might call cold calculation. Saul is a very calculating man. What is it the troops need to see so they'll follow me? He calculates that even though it's in disobedience to God. He calculates who might be uh, coming after his throne. He calculates who might like David better than Saul. All of his life is spent in cold calculation, trying to work things out for his own benefit. That is Saul. Now, David's heart is completely different. David's main motivation all the way through the scriptures, with the exception of Bathsheba, and, and we'll talk about that PG-13 episode a little bit later, but except for that, his motivation is always love. David is motivated out of love. What would the loving thing be to do and he will do it? His main concern, twofold, God and his people. What does God want? What would bless his people? Those are David's twin concerns. And his main method of operation is simply this. Reckless love. Reckless love. David loves with a wild abandon. There's no hint of calculation in it. One episode, uh, David's best friend, Jonathan, has died. And David is distressed about this. And he said, is there anybody in Jonathan's family still alive? If you bring them to me, I'll make sure that they eat and drink and have a place to live for the rest of their life. I'll take care of them. It's a bold, wild promise. And sure enough, they find a descendant, a son, who's been paralyzed since his childhood years. And David says that I will take care of you always. It's a wild promise. And he strives to keep it. Later in David's uh, career, when he gets ready to become king, the people in the south, which is Jerusalem, that area, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they've made David king. But the northern ten tribes, they're a little hesitant about making David king. He's really from the south. He's not from the north. He's not one of theirs. But pretty soon they look at the David train and they figure they better get on it before it runs them over. And so they come to David one day and they said, David, we want you to be our king too. And David, because of his reckless love, puts a, a deal breaker on the table and says, I won't do it. I will not be your king unless you bring me back my wife, Michael, who Saul stole from me and gave to someone else. He basically says, kingship means nothing to me. I want my wife back. That's Saul. I mean, that's David. That's, he's so opposite from Saul. It's his love that drives him. It's almost a reckless, wild love. John Ortberg may have said it best, I think, when he said, here's the thing about David. When David loved you, you knew you were loved because he left no stone unturned in loving you. That's who he was. Not calculating. Not rational about how he would give at all. So what do we learn? I think in summary, I think what I learn is that a heart that is after God will display a passion for God. 
A heart that's after God will just have a wild, passionate love for God. How do we see this in David? We see it when he's a boy. He comes to a battle line one time, and there's a giant whose name is Goliath, and he's taunting not only the army of Israel, but their God, as if their God is useless. David hears this speech and basically says, he can't talk like that about God. He can't talk like that to Israel. David says, I'll fight him. He's just a kid, way shorter. But he goes to fight him because he has a passion for God. A little bit uh, later, David uh, is a ruler. He is leading the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, you may remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, is a special box. It contained the Ten Commandments. It contained the staff of Aaron that, that budded. It contained manna that they had in the wilderness. And it contained for the people the symbolic presence of God, if not the real presence of God. And David was so excited to get this box back that all he's wearing is just a little apron called an ephod about yay big. Nothing else. And he's so excited about the ark coming back that he dances around wildly and joyfully. And his wife is disgusted. But for him, his passion for God comes first. And if she wants to be calculating in his appearance, she's missed the heart of David. And then he writes the 23rd Psalm, and what does he say at the end? He said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, that's not about heaven. That may be a part of it. That's about a guy's passion for God that says, God, I want to be with you every day, starting now and never stopping. There's nothing I want more than to be with you. That's his passion for God. But also I want to say this, that we also see in David a passion for his people. David doesn't just care about God. David cares about his subjects when he's king, his soldiers when he is a general, his friends like Jonathan. David cares deeply about his people and will risk himself for them. John Eldridge in in a wonderful book called The Way of the Wild Heart says that whenever you become king of anything, whether you're king for a day of your family or whether you're king of a community organization or CEO at work, he said, the most important question always for a king is this, how are the subjects faring? We've had enough in our country of people who are faring pretty well themselves while they're king, whether it be in business or at home or in a church, but care not for the welfare of the people under them. That's the opposite of David. With the exception again of Bathsheba, David's main concern is how are the subjects faring? David has a great passion for his people. Now I want to close by simply saying here's two reasons why passion for God and passion for God's people is so important if you're to have a heart after God. First one is this. Without a passion for God, without a passion for God, we will burn out when we try to help other people. Without a passion for God, when there's enough tsunamis, enough hurricanes, enough darfurs, you name it, enough disaster, we'll finally say, that's it. I can do no more. We will become fatigued. But if our main call is to follow God in that, we will find energy and purpose in helping others. I remember when I was entering seminary, they had interviewed the class before me that had come in, and they'd ask them, what are you doing here? And the answer of 80% of them or more was this. We are here to help people. And I remember the dean looked at them and sort of wryly asked, Oh, have you met the people? Have you ever known how hard it is to help some people? That when you help them with one hand, 
they go around you and twist the other. If you know that, it can be hard to spend your life helping people without a higher purpose, which is to serve God. So we must have a passion for God so that we do not burn out. But on the other hand, we must have a corresponding passion for people so we don't burn them up. How much danger and damage has done, been done in the history of our faith in the name of God? And it has been done in other religions. I, I mean, you may be a little offended by books like uh, The God Delusion and, and other books, that uh, Letters to a Christian Nation, all sorts of books that are now criticizing faith and praise of atheism. But one point you have to grant them. A lot of harm has been done in the name of religion. But the harm is because the passion for God was never met by an equal passion for people. And so Sunnis kill Shiites and Shiites kill Sunnis and they don't give a rip because they're doing it for God. And so good Jewish disciples like James and John walk through a town with Jesus. Jesus is uh, rebuffed by the town and so they ask, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them all up? And pastors like me start to keep score privately in their head about who's right and who's wrong on different issues and who God ought to get and teach. And we start doing things because we have an overriding passion for God, but it's not matched by an equal passion for people. David had both. He loved God wildly and he loved people recklessly at the same time. And that's the kind of heart that we need again today. So it raises the question for the rest of the summer. How does one get a heart like that? Well, let me tell you at least how it started. According to the scriptures, when David was anointed king as a young boy, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And that's a good start to pray for God, to fill your life, for God's spirit to be very active in you. But here's the truth in advertising, friends. The Holy Spirit came upon King Saul, too. The Holy Spirit just didn't stay around very long because Saul was not a welcoming place for the Holy Spirit. Saul's concern was never to walk with God on a day-by-day basis in love with God and in love with God's people. So it is one thing for you to invite God into your heart and your life, and I hope that you will. But it must be matched by desire to be with God not just this day, but each day the rest of the way.